you're going to hear in the sermon for this Sunday, you'll hear something about um, sort of reprioritizing your life. And I think that starts by remembering what the most important hour of your life is. And you'll hear more about that. But, um, you know, this is always a good chance to sort of reprioritize those things. Hey, hey by the way, thanks for uh, uh, letting Olivia bring the Tahoe over. We actually just took it out on the date that night. I said, hey, is that thing gassed up? Yeah, I said, good, where are the keys? <laughs> uh, so anyways, it gives you a new, it gives you sort of a chance to reprioritize your life. You know there are services, um, you know, Palm Sunday, of course, which is a big day, um, and Palm Sunday is sort of in betwixt and in between because you have the triumphal entry where the kids wave palm branches. And here's the other thing. If you have kids, bring them to wave palm branches. We used to sort of, you know, not discourage it, but it always looked goofy if you had just one or two kids waving palm branches. We also used to have the sword palm branches. You ever seen those? They look like swords. Those were dangerous because then you get like Drake trying to sword Charlie and, you know, the Wakeman boys are like, hey, where's my sword? And so then we went to the big ones that look like real branches, you know? I think that's what we bought this year, but we ordered them a little late, so maybe we got the knockoffs. I don't know. Um, but bring your kids. And I was, I was stunned because there's a, there's a quote in the bulletin I think from Egeria, and that was a Spanish nun from the third century who went to the Holy Lands to observe, she recorded all of her journeys, but to observe specifically the Holy Week rites in Jerusalem. So the first Christians, what do they do for Holy Week? What did it look like? And her journeys, it's called the Journeys of Egeria, are unbelievable. One thing she says is, on Palm Sunday, all the children wave palm branches and lead the bishop into the church, or the pastor, and it says even, you know, suckling babes are carried by their mothers and they wave palm branches and the bishop comes last because the bishop stands in the place of Christ. So these children sort of lead the bishop into the sanctuary. Uh, so I had renewed hope for kids waving their palm branches. That was a good thing. If you've got kids, we'll do it at whatever service we have kids at. So 9 a.m. and 11.15 are always the big ones. But if you've got kids at 7.45, I mean, that's punishment. But if you have kids at 7.45, uh, <clears throat> punishment for them, not for you. Um, you know, we're happy to, we'll do it there too. It'll be, just be them, but we'll have some fun. So it gives you a chance to reprioritize your life. Um, Palm Sunday, and then of course, uh, Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday. Those are very short. Those are 15 minutes. I think the service is at noon or 12.15. The vicar preaches. Um, you're done in 15 minutes so if you have a lunch break and you want to come over. And then of course, uh, Holy Thursday, you get into the great three days. So you have Holy Thursday, you have noon, a noon service, and then of course the night service on Holy Thursday, on Monday Thursday, is the big service because that's when the altar is stripped. Okay? Have all of you seen that before? You've all seen that, haven't you? I mean, you're all... If you haven't seen it, you want to see it, and the reason you strip the altar is because the altar is Christ, and Christ, of course, is stripped. Uh, and in some, some churches, you even see the altar is washed because they prepare his body for burial. So uh, come then, um, come Thursday night, and then Friday at 12.15 we have the Eucharist, which is great. How many of you grew up with the Eucharist on Good Friday? I didn't think, not many of you, huh? Yeah, it was always, it's kind of a split in the Missouri Synod. Some people say you shouldn't do it because he's dead. There's no better time to do it than when he's dead because it's his dead body that comes back to life and comes to the altar. So we have it at 12.15, that's a big service now, bigger, 200 people, 180 um, and then, of course, the night services, readings and candles and all that kind of stuff. So, vigil, come. Uh, all the new members will be received. In fact, I want to, uh, just as a heads up, you know, we used to do this goofy reception of new members. If you came in lately, uh, you probably heard something like this. I was looking at it. 
Here's how it begins. Now just think, in the solemnity of Easter Vigil, okay, incense, candles, chant, I mean, we're going all out. In the solemnity of that, can you, can you imagine me bringing all these people up to the altar and saying, dear friend, we're happy that you are to become part of our Christian fellowship. Let me extend to you the right hand of fellowship. And then you shake everybody's hand and you say, hey, Joe, thanks for coming through the class. Good to see you. And then you send them all back down to their seats. It just doesn't fit the night, right? It doesn't fit the night. And it was, it's goofy anyways. I don't know quite where we got this from. But, um, you know, do you promise to give your prayers, time, treasure, and talent? I mean, if you don't promise that yet, you shouldn't have come through the class. So, um, see, Betty, you never came through the catechumen. It's a little more rigorous than when you took it, I think. Um, so what we're going to do, I think, is um, we're actually going to do what the early church always did, which is we're going to bring up all of our new members, pray for them, and then anoint them all with oil and mark them and seal them as the baptized. You remember at the Easter vigil in the early church, you'd be baptized, you'd come out, and you'd be marked, and that was in some sense your confirmation. We do confirmation, it's goofy now. You know, We say, oh, receive the Holy Spirit, and then we don't put our hands on them, and then we do put our hands on them, and then we don't put oil on them. We do... Nobody knows what to do, so we're going to do it this way. So we're going to mark them with oil. And listen to this prayer. I think this, this sort of sums up where the congregation is going. This is the final blessing. So not, um, I, in the name of this congregation, extend to you the right hand of fellowship, Joe. This is how it will end instead. Go out into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve our God, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? It's not like, hey, we're going to have coffee hour afterwards. It's nice to have you here. This is a big deal, and we want to make it a big deal, and that's what the catechumens have been going through. So listen for that. Um, no, unfortunately they don't. We have a, usually we have at least one or two people who are unbaptized, um, and the struggle is, you know, they come to us 20 weeks, they came to us 20 weeks ago, and they say, I'm not baptized. And so the struggle is, how long do you hold people off from baptism? The early church had a whole different set of presuppositions, which don't apply to people in Wheaton. So we can't, while it's very similar, it's not the same. Uh, so we had a couple people baptized back in September, who will then be received as new members, who have not been confirmed, never had their Eucharist, none of that kind of stuff. And that'll be a big day. We've got a lot of people who haven't had their first Eucharist yet, so that'll be fun. Yeah. People who've held off for a year or two. So it's a, it's a day of rejoicing. On Friday at 12.15, we'll have the Eucharist. It's all black, you know. Some stuff, like you don't sing the Sanctus, you don't have the long preface. You don't, it's very quiet because that's the way the liturgy's always been. Thursday at both services. Friday at 12.15, Easter Vigil, and then all on Easter Sunday. No. It's, uh, not everybody won't get a candle, but it's, we put the eight big candles up on the altar, and we put them out after each reading. Um, no, 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 it's like, it's almost like a service of, yeah, it's a tenebrae service, it's like a Lenten lessons and carols, if you can understand it that way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, we were surprised, we did it for the first time again last year, and people loved it. It was packed, we have one service, um, so, but no Eucharist, we have tons of visitors, so... Yesterday, what was the feast? So it's nine months now till Christmas, right? Nine months till Christmas. Nine months till Christmas. And um, 
that was part of the reason we read Revelation 11 and 12. That is, um, you know, as Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, you can say that's not the virgin, but gosh, uh, you sort of have to plug your ears and pretend you're not listening. Uh, so yesterday, at least I would, I'm actually given a paper today out in Rock Island. How long is it going to take me to get to Rock Island? Augustana College. Two hours? What if I take your little motorbike? How long is that going to take? Oh, you don't have one? Okay. All right, well, i got to go out to Rock Island, and I'm giving a paper on the Annunciation to this. Uh, it's the American Academy of Religion. They have a Midwest conference. So it's funny that it fell today. I proposed the paper a year ago. Um, but the Annunciation is, it's the big deal in the church. So you sort of have Christmas and Easter as the two primary feasts. But other than that, the Annunciation really ranks up there as one of the biggest feasts in the church. Now, why is it the big feast? Not just because it's about Mary. It is about Mary, but why is it a big feast? Yeah, in fact, this is the first moment when he actually takes on body. Yeah, right, flesh. Um, and you have all of these overtones, these Mary-Eve pictures. You remember, who speaks to Eve and deceives her? A fallen angel, right? Who speaks to Mary and redeems her? An angel. And so you have this, this idea um, in the early church of not only everything coming under a new head. St. Irenaeus uh, talked in two terms. He said, the redemption happens by recapitulation. That's just a fancy way of saying everything's under a new head. You used to be under Adam, now you're under Jesus. But he also says it happens by recirculation. And what that means is precisely what happened to Eve, the exact opposite occurs with Mary. So it sort of unravels the disobedience of Eve. That makes sense? So Eve hears the word of the fallen angel. What does she do? She believes it, and she is condemned. Mary hears the word of the living angel, believes it, gives her, let it be unto me, and all of the world is redeemed. So for those of you who think Mary's just a vessel or Mary's just you know, a robot or she's just a puppet, that, that actually doesn't do justice to her word, let it be unto me. And that, of course, then um, sort of brings to fulfillment the let there be of creation. So Jesus says, let there be a creation. And guess what Mary says? Let it be unto me. So she receives the creative word. It's very, I mean, Lutherans seem to talk more about Mary because we've forgotten her. In fact, my, the title of my paper is A Forgotten Word and a Forgotten Woman. We'll see how that goes over with the evangelicals. Um, I'm leaving right after, and the excuse is my wife is great with child. I don't think she's going to give birth tonight, but I actually don't want to go out to drinks with the evangelicals where they all don't drink and look at me like, why did you give that paper? So, as far as they're concerned, Abby is great with child. Uh, I'll be home about 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, that just went on the radio. Hopefully none of them are listening. Uh, look at Psalm. Any, any questions? You all okay? Psalm 27. Isn't that what you asked for? Somebody asked for Psalm 27. You know what? Well, I, you know, actually, it's, it's very strange, because when I started to prep, I was looking at the book. I don't think I did it, but, well, then, of course, you don't remember what he said. So let's go right back to Psalm 27. This will be a whole new thing. I'm sure I'm going to say, man, this is very strange, because I actually started to mark it up, and I looked, and I thought, this is odd. I've got marks in Psalm 27. But, you know, Taze has pieces off of this psalm. One is Wait for the Lord, the great Advent piece, and then the other one is... Um, 
Yeah, that's one of them. There's another one. They, the, uh, the other one is, um, gosh, I don't remember it. I, can, I can't ever actually remember what it was. Here's how I remember it. I was hearing confession, and the words, um, gosh, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I can remember. I don't remember what the name of the song is. I don't remember who is in confession, but I can remember I was hearing confession, and I, if I hear it in my office, I often will turn the stereo on with the CD just so people don't get nervous about their confession going up through the vent. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you, you, some people have strange stuff. But uh, I can remember, as soon as I absolved the person, whomever it was, that came on the, on the stereo. I'm sure I will see the greatness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I thought, oh, that was, I'm enough of a Lutheran to believe in providence. So um, that was providential. Well, let's look at it again. We'll see if we can find something new. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. Um, it is, to a certain extent, an extension of Psalm 23. So you should be having, you should have Psalm 23 sort of in the back of your head as you listen to this. This is just a longer version. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now those are probably rhetorical questions. And you know that rhetorical questions are really just assertions, right? So rhetorical questions are just assertions. What he's saying is, I've got nobody to fear. And I've got nobody to be afraid of. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, and again you have that sort of animalistic picture of evil people. They almost become like animals. They sort of devour each other. My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Or in this I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And of course, what's, what's the house of the Lord a reference to there? Yeah, it's, okay, so work backwards. So you've got heaven is sort of, uh, uh, heaven would be called the antitype or the first thing or the prototype. Okay, now work backwards. Heaven is the ultimate house. Then what else do you have? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good. Now you're going all the way back. Okay. So if you work backwards, you have heaven. Um, now you got something in here. Let's see. Ah, uh, yeah. And then you got something like this. So uh, you got the tabernacle here. Tabernacle. Is that how you spell it? N A C L E? Whatever. Um, and then you have Eden, of course. What do you have right in here? Yeah, temple tabernacle. Yeah, you. But, uh, good. Who else? The church, who's called a mother and a wife, so also that. And then you have your, your sanctuary, your building. All these things are sort of the present-day um, house of the Lord. So if you work backwards, actually it'd be more like this. You, uh, yeah, you wouldn't be going this way. Actually, in some sense, you would be. You remember the woman who yelled at me at the door and said, you're always talking about going back to Eden. I actually saw her after that. I couldn't get to her quickly enough, but um, I think she knew I was coming for her, so that's good. I hope she's listening. I'm coming for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you go Eden, Tabernacle, 
you, Jesus, church, Mary, sanctuary, and then ultimately to heaven. But heaven, of course, is the same thing as Eden. So this is sort of the way it works, like this. Okay? So when you say, I long to dwell in the house of the Lord, you're not only saying, hey, I'd love to go sit in the sanctuary for two hours. You're saying, I want to be to heaven because I know heaven will be Eden. Yeah, it is. Um, it is now, although, as St. Paul says, I see through a, through a glass dimly. I don't see clearly, but you're right. Where is it now? It's only in specific spots. You don't go out to the golf course and say that's heaven. Good. So wherever, um, wherever Christ drops down to earth, there is heaven. Okay? And if you have heaven, you have all the saints. Okay? So wherever heaven, wherever Christ comes to earth, there you have all the saints. Of course, the primary point is the Eucharist. You ever notice the language of the preface? You know, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We have them lifted up. Um, you ever notice the language of the proper preface, how heavenly it is? You know, it's so much more heavenly than it is earthly. Because the action as a Lutheran, as opposed to your Calvinist friends or your evangelical friends, their action goes this way. Our action goes this way. So Christ comes down to earth, and where he Christ meets earth, there's heaven, and there you have all the saints. Where else does Christ meet earth? Baptism? Yeah, he swims in the pond. We just had that this morning. That was nice. Where else? Yeah, the Eucharist? Good. Where else? In his word, in his living voice, right? So when he speaks, and that's the thing of Mary, I mean, when Christ, when the angel speaks, how does Jesus get inside? As Luther says, Mary conceived through her ear. Okay? So when Christ hit her ear, there was heaven in her flesh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and that's, I mean, that's of course way back when. 431, they were calling Mary the, the mother of God, right? The bearer of God. Um, and mother, not just bearer. The joy group never quite get that. Although it's in our confessions about six times. Well, it could be bear, but then it look, yeah, well, we can talk about that offline. But um, the, I just want to, I'm a Lutheran, of course, so by confession, it says in the confessions, not bear, it says she is the mother. Yeah, bear just, yeah, bear is like a U-Haul truck. Yeah, exactly. There is some, some idea of service. Mary is a servant. But um, when she says, let it be unto me, in the Greek, that's what's called the optative, which means she's very hopeful and happy and joyous. It's not like, oh, God, here we go again. That would be one way of looking at it. Childbirth would, yeah. You, yeah, you, if you were at Tizay on Wednesday night, you remember the three readings were Isaiah 7, the virgin will conceive, Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the Annunciation, and what was the last one? Woman, behold your son, foot of the cross. So yesterday's just the beginning, and her time as Jesus' mother... Um, has never ended. So Eucharist, baptism, living word are all places where heaven drops down to earth. So whenever Christ speaks into your ear, I forgive you all your sins, he's there with all the saints. When he comes to the Eucharist, he's there with all the saints. When he comes to baptism, he's there with all the saints. All the saints are sort of hovered around the pond watching to see what Christ might do next. And he should also be in you permanently. You should be a heavenly place. Yes, exactly. 
Exactly. That's why in Matthew 25, Jesus says, if you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. How did you do it to him? Because he's in those least of these, his brethren. So yeah, whenever, so whenever you encounter people, it should be a heavenly encounter, right? Um, and that's what, frankly, that's what the psalmist is saying. I've got all these enemies. How can I encounter them? Well, I, I, I want to be in the house of the Lord. Verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now let me just pose the question to you. In his attempt to be in the Lord's house, is he active or passive? Just look at verse 4. Is he active or passive? He wants to be with Christ forever. He wants to be in community. He wants relationship and intimacy. Is he active or is he passive? Go ahead. Good. Now, so who said he was active? Why is he active? Yes, good. Guess what? He is both. He's active and passive. So he says, one thing I, one thing I ask, meaning it's given to me, uh, that I will seek after, meaning there's some activity on my part. What's he after? He's after getting in the temple, the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. What he's after is divine community. Okay? Now, I don't know how often you think of it, but I think... Uh, I think going forward as a congregation, um, one thing we have to focus on mightily, and actually our reconciliation team has been sort of heavily involved in this, and actually uh, Joe has been as well, but one thing they've sort of spotted is in going forward, we have to remember our identity, who we are. So not just what we've done and what we haven't done, but we need to refocus our eyes on who we are, what makes us up. Um, and I, I, I know we often think of our identity as mother and Christian and friend and whatever, but first and foremost, our identity is tied very closely. In fact, I would say it's one and the same is the identity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do you know about their relationship? If you were guessing, I mean, because you don't know a ton, but what do you know about their relationship? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how would you describe it? They're one, good, so there's, uh, yeah, good. So there's some unity there. Well, let's just say there's communion. Good. What else do you know? Good. Now we got all the catechism stuff out of the way. So they're, so they're, still, they're still individual. They still re retain their own personality. Good. I always say to the confirmation kids, you know, the Father is not, is not, is not. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet, you've seen this before, all of them are God. Is, is, is. Okay? So there's communion. They share the same essence. They're all God, and yet there's diversity. So the Lord doesn't expect you, Mary Lou, to be like me but he expects that we have something in common. Okay? What else do you know about the Trinity? Yes. Primarily, 
It's a communion of love. Right? What kind of love? Divine love. And what does that mean as it plays itself out in real time? What does that mean? This is important because if you don't understand how the Trinity relates to each other, you'll never understand how you should relate to you, how I should relate to you. So it's a communion of love, divine love, but what does that mean? Good. Obedience. Primarily, right, the Son is obedient to the Father. So you have all these adjectives. He's obedient. What else do you have? What else does it mean? Yeah, what they've been given to do, right? The Father never says to the Son, gosh, I wish I was like you. And the Son never says to the Father, ooh, I really wish I was the one who was pulling all the shots, right? Um, but you do have obedience. Uh, you also have, frankly, authority, right? Because who directs all the shots? The Father. The Father sends the Son, so the Son is passive. He is sent, right? So authority, you have compassion. Good. What else? Yeah, exactly. They can't live without each other. Okay? The church has always called it perichoresis. You all write that down. That's on your exam next week. <laughs> perichoresis. You want to know what perichoresis means? To dance. To dance. What do you know about a dance? I mean, I dance with, I've danced with my wife about twice. Or wedding? Okay, maybe just once. Uh, what do you know about dancing, though? Takes coordination, but before you even get to coordination, Andrew, you watch Dancing with the Stars? I only watch it because I want to see if Kate Gosselin's going to fall. That's the only reason I watch. She is so bad. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, all in all, I, I don't know who was at fault. I actually used to watch uh, with, you know, with Abby and Emma. We used to watch John and Kate plus however many kids they had. Um, I always thought she was a nice woman. I mean, she treated him like Abby treats me. Right? <laughs> the peanut gallery in the back. Don't worry, Abby's, Abby's great with child. She's not listening to this, I promise. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it was very sad. But I was anxious to see her on the show. I thought, nah, you know, she's gotten her life back in order. Maybe we'll see her. She was bad. Okay, all right, well, you call ABC and let her. She should be home with her eight children. I was actually going to hire those eight kids for next year's Noah's Remarkable Journey. Because last year, for some reason, we just were not good at counting. We read the scriptures, and we had how many kids on the ark at the end? Like 30? Yeah. Eight souls in all. Okay. Uh, but you watch Dancing with the Stars. What do you know about dancing? It takes coordination. What else does it take? Yes, good. That is you. If you had to figure out the problem of dancing, it would be there's one leader and one follower. Yes. And there has to be agreement on who the leader is and who the follower is, right? And if, the wrong, if both people lead, what happens? If both people follow, boom, right? Yeah, you're all over the place. So dancing takes a leader and a follower. It takes... Keep going. Yeah, I agree. If the leader doesn't lead, uh, then you can't dance. It's as simple as that. If the leader doesn't lead, you can't dance. So the father, in this, in this perichoretic dance, you know, the father leads and these two follow in the dance. But you know that there's, 
I, so whoever said interdependence was, was great. There's this interdependence. They can't live without each other. If the father, father suddenly drops off the map, these two can't survive. Okay? And you remember, remember Jesus even says, all that I have I receive from my father. And then when Jesus leaves, who does he send? I will send the comforter, the paraclete, right? So the son can't survive without the father, and you can't survive without the spirit. If any of these three miss or are gone, everything falls apart. That makes sense? So what we have to see is our own identity being shaped by this reality. This is it. In fact, you know, and this is, this is part of the problem with you know, part of our going forward needs to be a re-examination of what it means to be baptized, right? We all just presume we know what that means. I'm saved. Isn't this great? The Lord forgave my sins. But we sometimes forget that to be baptized means, guess what? You were out here on the fringe, and now you're right in the middle of this Trinitarian relationship. So what goes for them goes for you. That's your identity. Your identity is defined by divine love, mutual respect, obedience, authority, interdependence. You shouldn't be able to survive if the person across from, you, across from you at the rail doesn't come back. Right? We all depend upon each other. And this, only when you're a trinity, only when you have a leader and a follower, only when you have mutual interdependence, can you move forward and actually get something done. So what, what he's talking about here, and this is the reason I bring it up, what he's talking about here, the psalmist, is entering into divine relationship, but he also says very clearly, guess what? I have some part in that. Because you're baptized. If you weren't baptized, if you were just dead as a doornail, Ephesians 2, we wouldn't be talking about you doing anything. Then we'd be no different than Billy Graham. Make a decision for Jesus. But once you're baptized, you're not dead. Dead people don't do any work. Living people get something done. So part of your uh, re-envisioning your identity is not only to ask the Lord to give it to you as a gift, but to realize that if you just sit back and you know, don't do anything, it's not going to happen. So the psalmist says, I've asked for this, and this I will seek after. Passively, I hope you give it to me, but guess what? I'm going after it no matter what. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like, um, it's because the Lord's asked you to do it, right? Yeah, but you, you also remember, if you do what he asks you to do, what does he do? He blesses you, right? Okay. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is verse 4, second part. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, to meditate, actually, it says in the, in the Hebrew. And there the, the Hebrew word for beauty is noam. We talked about this all last year, I think. Was last year the beauty year? What, two years ago. Maybe it was two years ago. What was last year? No, 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 I'm talking about Sunday morning Bible study. Sorry. Incorporation and participation. Yep, that's right. Two years ago was beauty, and what we started with was the Hebrew word for beauty is noam. That's the word that's used here. And what that means in the Hebrew is the presence of God. It, it, it's first and foremost used 
when, uh, when the Lord comes down in fire and devours the sacrifice on the altar. So it's the incarnational presence. It's God present working in his temple. And so then you know the primary point of God's noam, his beauty, of course, is just yesterday, God working in his temple through her ear. That's why the church fathers say Mary is all beautiful, beautiful in all things. Right? So noam, uh, I will gaze upon the beauty. I will gaze upon the incarnational presence. It's not a matter of the senses. It's a matter of God being present for me. Verse 5, for he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. This is so good. Because on the cross, what happens to Jesus' side? You're going to hear about it in four days or five days. Boom, his side is pierced. John 1, Jesus came and templed among us. What happens to the temple curtain on the cross? It's tied open. So where do you hide? You hide in his wound, in his side. He will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. It's as though he opens up his side, lets you crawl in, and closes it back up and makes sure nobody's, nobody can see you. Right? Your enemies are coming. He opens it up. Boom. Get inside. It's all going to be okay. Okay, now they can't find you. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Okay, now the first, that, those first six verses um, have all been about David talking about the Lord and about his enemies. Now listen to the shift in verse 7. Hear, O Lord. So what's the change? First he's been talking about the Lord. Now what happens? Yes. And in the first half he's talked, he talked about blessings received. The Lord did all this to me. And in the second half he's going to talk about blessings to come. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Exclamation point. Please do it. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. This is, I mean, there's so much here. We just need to stop. Um, there's stuff here you don't see the first time around. Even though my father and mother have forsaken me. What does Jesus say in the Gospels about fathers and mothers? This is, yeah, though they may forsake you. Or he says, he who does not... Um, Yes, if you love your mother and father more than me, you're not part of the kingdom, right? And he says, what does he say? He who does not hate father and mother. So Jesus, he's not encouraging you to hate your parents. He's encouraging encouraging you to remember two things. One, your father and mother may turn against you, and that's okay, because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, your real father is your father in heaven, and your real mother is your mother, the church. I was, I'm going to turn it off for this. I was, uh, me, of seeing the sacraments in too many places. So anytime, anytime there's water, I see baptism. Anytime there's bread, I see the Eucharist. And that's oftentimes a criticism, like it just can't be that often. Um, I think those people are wrong for a variety of reasons, because primarily because for 2,000 years, that's the way the church has read the scriptures. It's the same thing with instances like this, where you see father and mother. Your, your mind should be directed back to your first father and your first mother. Most people would read that and have no sense of that. 
even Lutherans. But you're right, if you're always looking for connections, that would be the first place to look. So even though your father and mother have forsaken you, how do they forsake their children? Uh, by being deceived and bringing them into sort of this entangled mess of sin. Um, yes, and then he provides a new father, who is Jesus, the new Adam, and a new Eve, who is Mary. Um, and sort of un, you know, disentangles the whole mess through those two. So yeah, that would be a good place to, that would be a good place to look. You have said, verse 8, seek my face. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Now where in the liturgy do you hear about the Lord's face? Good. That was always strange to me as a kid. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Why do we say the Lord make his face shine upon you? Yeah. Yes, good. So you should walk upstairs sometimes, sometimes, and I think we've cleared out most of them, but you should look around. You should look around the school or the church and see if you can find any of those pictures of Jesus where he's sort of looking like this. You ever seen those? Pictures out this way and he's looking like this. Very nice picture of Jesus. Now, he looks like a German, but, you know, we're German Lutherans. Uh, he looks like a German. Um, it's like CPH when they made all of their new Sunday school stuff. They have Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam looks like a bodybuilder. And you're kind of saying, you know, I know he was without sin, but did he really have a six-pack like that? Really? Did he have a gym? Yeah, I mean, did, did, I mean, did the Lord create him to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't know. Maybe that's the icon of what a man should... Maybe. Um, you know, and Eve, you're kind of like, she should probably cover up a little bit because that's just not... But CPA, I mean, that's what happens when you put people off in an office in St. Louis and they make stuff for kids. They have no sense of... It's like when the guy said to me at the pastor's conference, I've never heard of Kanye West. I've never heard of Jay-Z. I've never been to Starbucks. But thank God you talked about Mary Poppins because I do know who that is. Like, you live under a rock? I mean, you've never been to Starbucks? Ever been to Starbucks? I gave him a gift card after that. Um, it's kind of like the CPH people. Anyways, face. What were we talking about? Yes. No, I don't remember. No, now you're going to interrupt me. I don't know what I was going to say. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's the problem with Jesus looking this way? His face isn't looking at you. If you ever have an icon, every icon has one thing in common. What is it? They all look at you. Because the face is everything. So in the, old, in the ancient world, and primarily in the Old Testament, the face, if you had the face, you had the entire person. That's why sometimes even the Lord will say, it doesn't say he was angry, it says his nose burned with anger. That's the way it is in the Hebrew. His nose was on fire. You ever seen your old man get like real upset? He starts to get red? Or a parishioner? That happens about twice a week around here. Someone comes in with a red nose. Like, hey, I read about this in the Bible. I know what to do. Turn my backside to you. Um, you guys didn't think that was funny. They all need to go on a mission trip, Jan, and see what not fun is. Um, but every good icon will look right at you because the face bears the presence of the person. So when he says, look, look upon me, turn your face to me, it means be present with me. It doesn't just mean look at me. Be present with me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. But then you remember in Luke 9.51, when Jesus comes down off the mountain of transfiguration, what does he do toward Jerusalem? Sets his face. 
Okay? See how it all works together now? Don't turn your face from me. Then he sets his face to Jerusalem, which is just a biblical way of saying he sets his face toward you. Verse 9, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Um, What's the one thing that John the baptizer did when he comes at the beginning of the Gospels? He will make straight the way, make straight the way of the Lord. And this is, partly it's a a, uh, symbolical thing, but partly it's just the way the land was. If if you've been to Jerusalem, yeah, what's it like? Is it all straight? You just walk straight and get right? No. So it's kind of like, not only does it, yeah, not only does it sort of weave like this, but the topography is like this, okay? So here's the wilderness where John the baptizer is, and here's Jerusalem where Christ is going to go. What's John's job? Make straight the way so that he can get from here to here. And then you've got to read Luke 9.51. He set his face to Jerusalem. How can he see it if he's out here? Because John has made the way straight. Okay, now the psalmist says, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I mean, if you've ever, <laughs> you ever seen Cold Mountain, the movie? Remember what happens when they, uh, they, they blow up the ditch and the enemies sort of come marching forward? Remember they all fall in and then the guys, you've never seen this? Forget about it. Um, I don't like the movie that well, that much, to explain it to you. So go watch it sometime and tell me what you think. Anyways, if you have topography that's all over the place, it's easy for the enemies to hide. He says, make it straight so I can see them. Give me not, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. What they want is something other than what I want. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. The gospel for two weeks ago, flip open to Luke chapter 20. I think that was the gospel. Oh, yes, this is so good. Luke chapter 20, look at verse 18. This is the gospel from last Sunday. Now, keep in mind the verse from the psalm we just read, where it says, just keep this in the back of your head, where it says, For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Now, verse 18 of Luke chapter 20. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes, and this is the continuation of the parable, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived, isn't that great? They perceived. It wasn't real. They perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Now look at verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Isn't that great? So what do they do? They perceive something that's not true. Perception is not reality. They, they truly believe it, so their perceptions have become reality for them. That's when you know you got an idol, when you convince yourself of your own perceptions. And then what do they do to trap Jesus? They send spies... Who, this is so good, who do what? Yeah, who pretend to be sincere. Isn't that great? They pretend to be sincere. You ever had this where you know somebody's out to get you, and they say, hey, go out to lunch sometime? You know, ah, let me buy you a cup of coffee, or 
hey, I'm, I'm, this is when it gets good. When they start to mix in sort of theological overtones with their fake sincerity, sincerity, hey, I'm praying for you. Thank you. Now, sometimes that can be very real. Sometimes they're spies, right? And what the psalmist is saying is the same thing Jesus says. These false witnesses have risen against me. What does that mean? They're not telling the truth. They're telling lies. And they breathe out violence. I believe, now in the midst of all of that, I believe, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now that tells you a couple things. The Lord is always good. And where will this psalmist end up? In the land of the living, which means if you're a false witness, if you lie, you are dead. That kind of stuff can kill you. Okay? Evil can kill you. But I shall land in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that, you know, is the great Advent uh, to piece. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Right? Because eventually, and this should be your consolation, this is the reason why you, know, you have no enemies, this is the reason why everyone is a friend, because eventually the Lord will come back fully and finally, heaven will come down to earth, and guess who's going to square it all up? He will. So what the psalmist is basically saying is, man, these guys are going to kill me, they basically sent spies, they're false witnesses, they're lying about me, they're trying to devour me, they might actually kill me, I'll end up in the land of the living because I'm waiting for the Lord. He will come back and square everything up. And that's why Jesus then returns with a lily in one hand and a sword in the other. When Jesus returns, if you end up on the wrong side, that's a very painful thing. If you end up on the right side, literally and figuratively, that's a very joyous thing. Okay? And the reason you'll end up on the wrong side is because um, you haven't received Jesus' cross and resurrection as a gift. If you continue to sort of bang on people and be evil and be sinful, what you're saying is what Jesus did didn't matter and I can do it all on my own. That's a painful thing. If you think you can die for the sins of the entire world, have at it. But uh, that's, not where, that's not where I want to spend my time. Okay? Ah, uh, I was going to, you know, hmm. Try it, yeah, I don't, I don't want to bring it up. It's too controversial. Um, yeah, with you. I don't want any emails. <laughs> Do you have any questions about this? Yeah. No, this is like, I'm going to plant some dynamite right here and blow this hill up so it sort of levels out a bit. Now, I'll, I'll get a big bulldozer and push it into this. And Yeah, it is, you know, this is the upside-downness of the gospel. He does things that the world thinks are shaking things up when in actuality he's making the path very smooth for Christ. And that, that just shows you how different the world is from, from Jesus. What you, know, what you all hear maybe as um, worldly bad things, and I'll, the first examples are authority, obedience, you know, uh, communion. In the world today, there's no authority, there's no obedience, and everybody is an individual. Then you come to the church and we say, listen to authority, be obedient. It's first and foremost about community, and you all say, how can that be? Same thing when John the baptizer walks to make the path straight. This is not the world. Yes, right, right, exactly. In fact, I think oftentimes non-Christians view Christians as a good thing to have around. It's Christians who can't always get... Exactly, yeah. 
Isn't that a strange thing? Non-Christians are like, hey, thanks for, I mean, you plant trees, you cut your grass, you're nice to your spouse, you take your kids to school. And, you know, Christians are like, obedience, communion? Yeah, I've often thought about saying that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is, I mean, I, I, think, I think, yeah, I mean, what would you all do if I stood up and said, you brood of vipers? Yeah, that would be more than shaking things up. Uh, I can promise the bishop would have a phone call. Um, some, some people have them on speed dial right now. So uh, somebody would call him and say, can you believe he said this? And I'd say, hey, right out of the text. Yeah, right. Me too. What else? What this presumes is, at the end of the day, you know, everybody's in and sort of everybody's out. The one thing I, I would say, and I will turn it off to this, this is what I, 